Hello, friends. Good morning, and uh, I want to welcome you, those joining us over our, our uh, Facebook church page, Three Angels Sabbath Day Church, and uh, those joining us over our YouTube channel, and those uh, who are joining us through our uh, chat room, Pal Talk, uh, welcome you this uh, morning. We have a very, very uh, important studies, we always do, and uh, we want to get into it because it's pretty in-depth. And uh, let's have a word of prayer together before we get into God's Word, because that's very, very important as well. We want to know what the truth is, and we want the Holy Spirit, who is the author of that truth, that inspired truth from God's Holy Word, to uh, give us discernment and uh, give us wisdom. And so let's bow our heads now and have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so very, very much for this opportunity to come together to study from your word, to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray now for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us. Give us discernment to see the truth, to understand it, Lord, uh, fully, uh, to uh, reconcile it in our minds and to have a love for the truth uh, so that we may live it. Uh, give us that strength to live the truth no matter what happens. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life and death for us and uh, for his ministry for us. We are very thankful that we still have time, a little bit of time here, uh, to accept the most precious gift that you've given to us. Uh, we pray for those who couldn't be with us here today. We pray especially uh, for Dorothy who's had uh, issues with lung cancer. We pray, pray that you be very, very near to her and all those that we know on our prayer list, Lord, that um, that need your your peace and your love. Give me the words to speak, I pray, in the blessed name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who is worthy. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, friends, I thought long and, uh, and hard and, uh, about whether to speak about this particular subject uh, when we talk about the sin issue. And I prayed probably more about this than most studies I've given. Uh, and the reason for this is uh, due to the temptation uh, to get dragged into some really heavy theological issues that uh, even to this day are debated back and forth between differing camps within Christianity, uh, even within the, the Second Advent movement itself. But I've come to realize that if we as a people, if we as a people understand what sin is, this is why we've been studying this issue, the sin issue. And if we can come to understand this issue more fully as God wants us to, uh, and if we realize that if we as a people deal with the sin issue as God lays out in his word, as individuals, and keep our eye looking up, keeping our eye on Jesus, we'll be led by the Holy Spirit uh, to do the right thing concerning personal as well as corporate sin. And we'll get more into the biblical steps on how to react and deal with sin between us as individuals in the corpus, the corporate, uh, the body, the church, uh, the next few studies we get together. We're going to take a look also at like perception. What, how perception, what is perception, how it plays in to, to uh, our thinking about sin and how then to react to it. But there are many within the Advent movement especially who have a misconception of what corporate sin is and many more within the Advent movement who don't even believe that it exists. And so that's why uh, we 
at the very least, needed to be introduced to this subject, and then each of us can study it out for ourselves. And I always encourage you to do that. Uh, pray to God for the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and study it out for yourselves. But let's let's study it and let's take the weight of evidence, okay? The weight of evidence we find in God's Word, and let's live accordingly by God's Word. Amen? And so if we understand the principle... Uh, then we can better understand the Lord's dealings with corporate punishment that we read about a lot, especially in the Old Testament. But it's in the New Testament too, my friends. This principle is throughout God's Word. But we'll be, be able to understand more clearly uh, uh, the Lord's dealings with corporate punishment like Noah's flood. Why would he destroy wicked men or Sodom and Gomorrah? you know, or nations, or, you know, like the Amalekites. Why Why did God do that? Well, when we understand this principle, we will see it more clearly as to, oh, okay, that's why God had, had friends, out of love, this amazing thing, had to deal with it, these things in, in such things that we look at as maybe extreme, but they, they were extreme acts of love in the end and mercy. And so it'll begin to make sense as we learn uh, that such judgments are God, of God are the result of uh, a final decision that has been made, a final rejection of God's forgiveness. Um, and in fact, it becomes an act of, like I said, mercy uh, by God. And uh, if God were to allow, in most cases, if you, you look at this, if God were to allow that to continue, uh, it would be a mockery to God, and God would actually be sustaining sin. And in a lot of times, they would be doing it in his name, and, and that can't happen, see. So knowing the principle uh, also will help in understanding why God calls his people out of organizations due to apostasy, as we see through history with the Catholic Church and, and the fallen denominational churches. Uh, prophecy describes these fallen entities as Babylon fallen. And spiritually speaking, Babylon can only be a religious organization that was once pure in God's eyes, see, and according to his word, they were once pure, but they're now defiled and corrupt. And this has nothing to do, I'll tell you this right now, this has nothing to do with probation closing or not. As some use, some people use, and ministers I've heard preach from the pulpit, they use this as a definition of what it means for Babylon to be fallen, that probation has closed because they have fallen. Um, but it doesn't mean that, friends. It, it means that they have become spiritually corrupt and they are on their way to having their probation closed, which, again, we see in Noah's flood and we see with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the Amalekites and several other examples. Uh, um, but it involves religious bodies, too. Um, you know, the corpus, the corporation, the body, the church. And it does, it's not an individual. I've had uh, uh, Christians tell me, and, and especially Adventists who should know better, uh, tell me that this religious leader or, or, or that religious leader is Babylon. I'm sorry, my friend, uh, but that cannot be. According to the scriptures, it is not, and it is actually a deception. It's akin to the teaching uh, that there is an Antichrist individual that will arise to fulfill Armageddon. And, you know, 
uh, you hear this quite a lot, this misunderstanding throughout Christendom like that. You know, some people call uh, President uh, Barack Obama uh, this Antichrist individual. Or some used to call George W. Bush the president. Oh, that, he's the Antichrist or whatever uh, uh, example you can see throughout history. But that kind of teaching is unbiblical. So I would advise you, you hear those things, put that far from you. And stick with God's word, friends. Stick with God's word. Let me share this with you. It's from The Great Controversy, page 383. The message of Revelation 14, announcing the fall of Babylon, must apply to religious bodies that were once pure and have become corrupt. So we see there, it has to refer to a religious body okay, that has become corrupt. They were once pure, but have become corrupt. And knowing what sin is, then, uh, helps us to see what is pure and what is corrupt, right? And the corruption spoken of here in, in this quote is the kind that has completely grieved away the Spirit of God so that there's no longer uh, available mercy and sacrifice for the sins that have have been uh, committed. They have committed, in essence, the unpardonable sin. You know, whether as an individual, and that's where sin starts and essentially ends, isn't it? Uh, with us as individuals, uh, or as a corpus, uh, a body, a corporation, a church, the result of grieving the Holy Spirit will be the same. Ultimately, eternal death. And so uh, that is what makes this subject so vitally important to recognize and to understand. That is why we must uh, make the right decision in whether to stay on the ship. Have you heard that expression? Well, stay on the ship. You know, that's what some will say. Those mainly who, who really don't understand what corporate accountability is, uh, they use that expression. You need to stay on the ship. In an attempt, why are you going to stay on a, a sinking ship? Well, we need to reach those inside. We, we're going to reach those inside and save them. We're going to save the corpus, you know, the body, the church. Um, so we need, we need to make, have this knowledge of this principle in order to make a right decision as to whether uh, uh, to obey the Lord when he says, uh, calls us, uh, you know, to get in the lifeboat of truth. Are we going to stay on the ship that's sinking or are we going to get in the lifeboat of, boat of truth? And, and so we, wanna, we need to understand the principle in order to discern that um, because it's a decision whose results will last for eternity. Friends, and uh, and so you know, Revelation eighteen four, uh, in speaking of Babylon fallen, says this. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, "Come out of her, my people." Why? And notice, first of all, he's calling them my people. So not everyone in Babylon is of Babylon. He does have people in Babylon, but they just don't recognize it yet because they're drunk as the the Bible says they're drunk with the wine, see, of Babylon. But they need to be sobered up. And the truth is what sobers them up. And so he hears a voice calling from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins. That's the reason for the call to come out. So we won't partake of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. 
So why does God call us out of the corpus, the body, the church of Babylon? Because of this principle of corporate sin. God does not want us to be defiled by her, which will lead one to receive of the plagues and die the second death and be gone for eternity. Now, to understand this principle, as we've looked at uh, in parts one and in part two, we need to learn from and, and uh, understand Paul's metaphor of the church as a body that you read about in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, let's go there. I want you to notice what he says in verses uh, 12 to 14. Paul says, For as the body is one, and hath many members, all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into that one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. So we who profess to be Christ's, we can see here as Paul's laying out here in this whole chapter, chapter 12, um, <clears throat> those who profess to be Christ, they sustain a corporate relationship one with another. And to Christ himself as our head. According to Paul, there is a corporate unity of the body. Uh, in, that you read about in this chapter. There's a corporate diversity of its various members, you find, as you read through this chapter. A corporate need that is felt by all. Remember, he says, well, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, right? And you find a corporate balance of the various members of the body. Uh, a corporate care, because they feel for each other and for the head, and a corporate suffering and rejoicing, which uh, all the members share together. Um, you know, if, if I stub my toe on a bedpost, which I have done on a few occasions, my whole body feels the pain. If the leg could speak, it'd say, you know, I'm sorry. I guided the toe against the post. I didn't mean to do that. The eye would, would say, no, it's my fault. I should have seen the post. Now, when we talk about this, the, the body here that Paul's talking about, it's a noun. And the word bodily is an adverb. But there's no meaningful English adjective that can describe the nature of this relationship within the body except the word corporate. And that's from the Latin word for body, corpus, which we looked at before. And again, just to, to refresh your memory, the dictionary defines it again as relating to a whole composed of individuals. So when you stub your toe, at once you realize the corporate relationship of the limbs and organs of your body, don't you? And any of you who have stubbed your toe, you stop, you know, while your whole body cooperates by rubbing that hurting toe to lessen the pain. And you may even hurt all over. Your other organs and limbs feel a corporate concern, you see, for that wounded toe, as if each separate member actually feels the pain. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26, notice what Paul says. He says, And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Any, 
amputation in the body becomes a schism, you see, to be avoided at almost any cost. And likewise, any measure of disunity or, or, or misunderstanding or lack of compassion in the church is foreign to Christ and his body. It's as, an alien, it's as alien as disease or accident is to a human body. And sin is such an accident to the body of Christ, and guilt is its disease, friends. Often we suffer disease without knowing which organ is ill. That happens quite a lot. Or even what causes it. Uh, we can also suffer from sin, you see, without knowing what the sin is. How can sin, then, have both a personal and corporate nature? Well, let me see if I can explain it by giving you an example. In areas of Africa and Asia, people are bitten by a mosquito. And they're infected with malarial disease. Up to 10 days after the bite, the parasites in the bloodstream produce malarial fever. And not only is the one member, you know, such as the hand affected, that's where the mosquito bit on the hand, let's say, but the whole body partakes of that common fever. The bloodstream has carried that parasite everywhere, you see. This becomes a corporate disease and concerning the body. When we receive an injection then, let's say, of an anti-malarial drug in one member, let's say in our arm, the arm receiving it is not the only member that benefits from it, is it? The medicine begins to course throughout the bloodstream. Soon the entire body is healed of the disease and the fever disappears over all the body, not just in that one member who got the shot. This is then what you could call corporate healing. Sin, if we look at that, as a, we look at that example and then we look at sin, sin is a disease, okay? We've been infected with this disease called sin. It can only be treated by the anti-sin drug of Christ's righteousness, friends. And when brought by the Holy Spirit, it can bring corporate healing. Not just to the one Christian, but to the whole body. So when you deal with sin at a corporate level, it affects the whole body, you see, corporately. Now the Bible writers... They perceive the whole of humanity as being one corporate man. And we talked about this, um, we talked about this before. Uh, they believe that, that humanity was one corporate body in the man, the fallen Adam. Paul says, in Adam all die. You look at 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, we talked about that. Here, let me put this over here. We talk, we've talked about that previously. A good example uh, is found in uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Um, this idea, what the Bible writers were trying to tell us. Hebrews 7 verses 9 and 10. Paul said that Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. How many of you have read that and, and thought, what in the world is he talking about? <laughs> well, see, he's talking about this corporate sin principle, this idea of corporate relationship. Abraham did not yet have even one son 
Okay, so how was that possible for Levi to do that? The idea of one corporate body. Um, Daniel asks forgiveness for the sins of our fathers, saying, We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God, although he himself had been obedient. You look through uh, the entire Bible, and you cannot find anywhere where it says that Daniel sinned. He followed Jesus. He followed God, who was Christ, um, and would rather die than sin. They threw him in a lion's den. He would rather die by lions than sin. And so Daniel's saying, for you know, asking forgiveness for the sins of our fathers. Um, you know, human sin is personal, uh, but it's also corporate, as Paul says. For all alike have sinned, and he says, all the world has become guilty before God. You read that in Romans 3. Adam's real guilt, when you under, start to understand this principle, friends, Adam's real guilt was that of crucifying Christ. And you may say, well, Adam wasn't even alive when they crucified Christ. Well, that was actually Adam's, Adam's uh, real guilt. Although he his original sin was 4,000 years before. So when you understand this corporate accountability that we have, not one of us in Adam is even now excused for, for what we've done. We are guilty of the death of the Son of God, are we not? Because we are by nature at enmity with God. And, and we await only the proper circumstances to demonstrate it, you see. A few people did demonstrate it for us by crucifying the Son of God. And so in them we see ourselves. The sin that another human being has committed, I could commit if Christ had not saved me from it. My righteousness, friends, is either all of him or it is nothing. And this is true for every single one of us. As Paul said in Romans 7, 18, In me, nothing good dwells. And if nothing good is there, as I'm part of the corporate body of Adam fallen, all evil could dwell there as well. So nobody else is intrinsically any worse than I am apart from Christ. And not until we can see the sin of someone else as our sin too, I believe, can we learn to love that person as Christ has loved us. And the reason is that in loving us, he took our sin upon himself. And when he died on his cross, we died with him corporately in the principle, see? in that accountability. And if this seems to be bad news, there's also good news. Christ forgave his murderers, we're told, and that means he also forgave us. Even the fallen Adam and Eve in the garden were forgiven. But you and I can never know that same forgiveness unless we see the sin that makes it necessary and take those steps that we've talked about before, those steps to overcome repentance, confession, and exercising faith to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit as we keep looking up to the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ. And since God had promised Adam and Eve that in the day that you eat of the forbidden tree, ye shall surely die, 
they would have died on that very day, my friends, if there had not been a lamb slain for them from the foundation of the world. You read about in Revelation 13. The guilt that Paul says rests upon all the world is in Adam, you see, and it is legal. You see, we're in a great controversy, and there are rules of engagement. There is a judgment. It's legal. The trespasses of all the world were imputed unto Christ as he died on his cross as the, the second or the last Adam, Paul talks about there in 2 Corinthians 5. That means that all the condemnation that the first Adam brought on the world was reversed by the second Adam, who is Jesus, by virtue of you see, of his sacrifice for sin. This is the corporate sin principle. Now, I want to look again at some more Bible examples of this principle. For when you understand sin, you begin to understand sin, what it is, and that's what we've been studying and learning as we looked at this sin issue uh, in this series. So when you understand sin and corporate accountability, you'll begin to see it throughout the word. I promise you, it will pop out at you. Does that ever happen to you? You learn a certain principle that God has been teaching, and then as you read your Bible more and more, that principle begins to pop out at you at different examples. I guarantee you this will happen. You understand this corporate sin principle. Let's go to Genesis chapter 12. Here we see that while Abram was in Egypt, he asked his wife, Sarah, to say that she was his sister. So, you know, why would he do that? Well, so the princes, the Egyptian princes, wouldn't kill him. See, that's why he was saying it. And what was the result of him doing that? Let's go to Genesis 12 uh, and begin with verse 17. And the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And Pharaoh called Abraham and said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why sayest thou, She's my sister? So I might have taken her to, to me to wife. Now therefore, behold thy wife, take her, and go thy way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. There's some important things here. You, you see... Abraham had married his half-sister. Sarah was the daughter of Abraham's father, but not of his mother. So Abraham, he felt that he was okay in saying that, that she was his sister. But he was being deceitful, wasn't he? You know, when, when the kids were growing up, my kids were growing up, uh, I used to say that they would make good lawyers because kids, they're always testing the boundaries, and they look for that technical, you know, that technicality that could try, you know, they try to use to get them off, see, to, get a, to save them from any kind of corporal punishment, okay? And so here's what Abraham's doing. He's using some technicalities here, but he's being deceitful. And you can't do that with God, friends. You can't uh, try to get off on a technicality with God and his principles. And so as we looked at this, I want you to notice what, 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 what happened here. Notice that Pharaoh was held accountable. Now, why was Pharaoh held accountable? And not only Pharaoh, but his entire household. They were held accountable for this sin. 
plagues fell upon Pharaoh and his house because of the sin of Abraham. Well, you see, Abraham was considered a guest of Egypt. He was considered a friend of Egypt. He was considered actually a confederate, a part of the country. And, you know, when you, you study into this a little bit more, you actually realize that God used the plagues to protect Sarah from uh, Abraham's deceit, for they stirred the Pharaoh to search out the source of God's displeasure. And when, notice also, when Pharaoh dealt with it accordingly, the plagues ceased. How did Pharaoh deal with it? He confronted it, didn't he? He wanted an explanation as to why. Then he rounded them up, not, not just Abraham, but Abraham, his wife, and everything he had, and removed them. And that stayed the plagues. There's a lesson there for us, isn't there? Let's go to the account of Lot in Sodom. Genesis 19 and verse 15. And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. Now that's interesting, isn't it? How can a city commit iniquity? Well, by its corporate members. Here, Lot is threatened with death if he does not act uh, quickly to separate from that corrupt city, that corpus, that corporation, that body. Okay? And by the way, think about that, removing yourself from that, that uh, uh, corrupt city, the iniquity of that city. Think about that in the context of the admonition that we have uh, from the prophet to move out of the cities. That's uh, an interesting study there in itself. Now, was God favoring Lot just because he was Abraham's nephew? You know, some people believe that. But no, God's no respecter of persons. Second Peter 2, verse 6 through 8, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that should live ungodly. And delivered just Lot, just Lot, he was just, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. He was vexed at, and, and, and was ashamed of what he saw and heard from the people in that city. Verse 8, For that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. It really tore Lot up. Uh, to see these this wickedness. Um, but did God favor Lot just because, oh, he's related to Abraham, so I'm going to save him? No, Lot was looked at as a just man and righteous. So even though God acknowledged Lot, I want you to notice this, it wasn't because he was related to Abraham, and not even because he was just and righteous, Okay. God acknowledged that Lot was just and righteous. But if he would have refused to heed the command of that angel to separate from the corpus, the corporation, the body of Sodom, all his righteousness would not have saved him from being consumed by the fiery wrath of God's judgments that came from heaven. 
the point to be made here, friends, is that regardless of our standing with God, if we refuse to obey his command for us to separate from sinful associations, we will be destroyed along with them. God's no respecter of persons. So, you know, we'll not be in one accord with God if we, we don't heed his call. We will actually be saying we are in one accord with those evildoers. Let's look again. And we looked at that this example uh, uh, in depth, but it's so good. It's a, almost a perfect example of this principle uh, found in number 16 with Korah, uh, Dathan, and Abiram. But let's, let's look at it again. Numbers 16, verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Ishhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. These were men who were those ministers of God up on a pedestal. Those ones that the people followed. These were stars in the church. Did we see any of that happen today in our world? Are there stars of the church? Famous in the congregation. Men of renown. Verse 3, And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You know, you take too much upon you. Seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them, Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. You think too much of yourselves. Now Korah, the, he was the leader of this rebellious movement, this discord. He was a Levite. He was a Levite. He was actually a cousin of Moses. He was a man of he was a man of great ability and influence. And you could tell by this example, all these people, even 250 princes of Israel, famous in the church, followed Korah. That tells you how, how uh, charismatic this man was and the abilities that he had. Now the Korites, they encamped on the south side of the, the tabernacle and they were near the Reubenites. And the children of Korah, they were assigned to the ministry of music and song at the sanctuary services, which I find to be incredibly interesting because Satan was the leader of the angelic choir in heaven before he was expelled because of his rebellion. And he uses music here on earth to encourage rebellion against God. I think it's more, more than a coincidence. Here's Korah. He's in charge of the ministry of music, and he's leading a rebellion against God, against God's servants. Dathan and Abiram, they were princes, princes of the tribe of Reuben, and they claimed for themselves as descendants of Jacob's firstborn the right of civil leadership in Israel. 
They claimed for themselves. We are related, a direct line. We have a right to be leaders. And even though Korah was a Levite and served in the tabernacle, you see, he'd become dissatisfied with his position. He didn't want to lead the music. He wanted to be a priest, you see, because that's where all the action is. That's the ones that are in the know. They're the ones that are really looked up to, those priests. And so he, along with those who followed him, you know, they had forgotten that the Lord was the head of the body. And it was the Lord God that did the calling and ordaining, and not man. History does indeed repeat itself, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, when discussing the ordination of leaders, it's been a hot topic within Adventism for the last 10 years or more. Specifically, women as elders, for example. I've heard this same expression used as Korah used to justify his rebellion. In verse 3 we read, And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, You take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Here are the same things. Same things today. But what is Korah saying here? He is saying that all the congregation are qualified to be priests. That's what he's saying. Is that true? What does the, the, the God of the Bible say in his word about that? Is everyone in the body, when you read the Bible, does it say that everyone in the body of Christ is qualified to be ordained ministers? Are all qualified to be elders? Apostles? Prophets? It's sad, friends. But some in the church today have this same spirit of core and they speak as he did. Very sad. It is a fact that before Moses' time, the family leader might offer sacrifices in his own family. That's how it began before they got the sanctuary and the services. But now this office, this priestly office was confined to one family line. And that one enjoyed all the benefits that came with that privilege. It's also true, of course, that in the sense the whole congregation was holy, okay, there was a little bit of truth to it. That's where the hook was, see. There's a little bit of truth to it. You know, the whole congregation was holy in that uh, the people were chosen by God and they separated from the surrounding nations. In that respect, you know, well, yeah. But please be aware, friends, and understand that God had now ordained that the Theocratic church, as he organized it, should exercise its outward priestly function through one family that had been set apart for that purpose. God chose the line of Levi to serve that function at that time, and because they were chosen, they didn't receive an inheritance of land as the other 11 tribes did. We need to understand what God's word really says to us, friends. And so we have this rebellion by these men. And what is God's reaction? In number 16, verse 20, And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves 
from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. That don't sound good, does it? <laughs> I don't want God to consume me in a moment. But here is a rebellion against those called by the Lord to serve him as leaders. And the call by God to, to the, his leaders is to separate from the rebellion. You need to separate yourselves from the rebellion, from the sin and rebellion, the iniquity, just like with Lot. The iniquity of the city, that's open rebellion against God. Now, I have to point out an interesting reaction by Moses and Aaron to this command. Look at verse 22. And they fell upon their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation? Sounds like Moses and Aaron didn't understand corporate accountability. What was the question they asked of God? <laughs> Moses and Aaron, righteous leaders in the church, don't miss that, good men of God, are asking God to make an exception in this case because surely the entire church is not responsible for the discord of a few errant leaders. Does that sound familiar to any of you, my friends? Do we not hear this same sentiment repeated almost ad nausea about the condition of the corpus, the body of the church today? Oh, there's, there's just a few bad apples. And God knows that. God knows who those bad apples are in leadership. And so he'll let that slide. He'll remove those leaders, but we're okay. Really? Do you actually believe and think that God will just let it slide? Or that he will miraculously just remove the leaders? Did God let it slide with Korah? Well, beloved, I say this with all humility. This idea is a grievous error from Satan. Each one of us is held just as responsible as the ones who are the bad apples if we are a part of the same corpus body congregation. What was it that God said to Moses and Aaron? Separate yourselves. And then God dealt with it. God didn't say, stay right where you are. I'm going to take care of it. God's call to Moses and Aaron was to separate from that congregation. And so to remain in one accord with God, they had to separate. And then he would consume them, see. Here's from uh, a quote from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, page 354. They, that's the congregation, also were in alarming danger of being destroyed in their sins. That's the sins of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Uh, by the wrath of God. For they were sharers in the crimes of the men to whom they had given their sympathy, they'd given them their sympathy, and with whom they had associated. They were connected. Go, go back and think about Paul's example there in 1 Corinthians 12 about a corporate body in each member. So can you see the danger, friends? 
By sympathizing with and associating with these sinful men, God considered the congregation, the entire congregation, just as guilty as they were, those men were, and thus corporately they were subject to being destroyed. Number 1626. And he, Moses, spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men. And it didn't stop there. Not just get away from those wicked men. And touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. Oh, the pastor, that was the God of the Old Testament. A God of wrath. We're under grace now. Because of Jesus and what He's done. And we stay in the tents of these wicked men so we can reach them for Christ. Really? My friends, don't listen to the, the subtle sophistry of the devil. John tells us that God is love. And he is love, isn't he? He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that same God called for separation. And who are you going to believe and obey? The truth is that this principle has not changed. We're always exhorted to instant and complete separation from those in rebellion. You should notice, too, that all the goods of the these rebel uh, rebels that that uh, they're in with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, all the goods that they had, all their possessions, God was going to destroy them as well. So he said, don't even touch that stuff or you will be defiled. Now this is a principle, part of corporate sin. The same principle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 6. This principle of separation from sin and rebellion, from iniquity. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath, hath he that believeth with an infidel? That's an unbeliever, someone who doesn't believe in God, a, a pagan. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And again, it doesn't stop there. He says, and touch not the unclean thing. And I will receive you and will be a father unto you and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. A problem I see a lot today is people will separate for one reason or another, but they bring the unclean things with them wherever they go. That doesn't solve any problems, any issues with sin. But the Lord calls for a complete separation. He doesn't tell anyone to stay within that rebellious corporation, that rebellious organization, that rebellious body to try to reach them and turn them from darkness to light. You see, God has other methods of reaching those who are in rebellion and, and in darkness. 
I say let's heed the word of the Lord, friends, and not make decisions based solely upon our inclination of what what's a right course or or have a, a sentimental affection that uh, causes us to lose sight of doing what God says is right and what we, we need to do. And re let me remind you of this statement. It's from the Signs of the Times article, November 8, 1899. Paul writes to the Romans, If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. If it be possible, Paul's saying. She says, but there is a point beyond which it is impossible to maintain union and harmony without the sacrifice of principle. And that's righteous, holy principles. Separation then becomes an absolute duty. Now this is really strong language. But let, let's remember that God knows what he, is the best course of action in every situation. Let us remember that when he tells us to separate and we don't do it, friends, we're held accountable for that decision. Remember that Moses asked the Lord there, verse 22, Shall one man sin, and wilt thou be wroth with all the congregation? <laughs> what do you think the answer is? The answer to the question raised by Moses to God is yes. God hates sin. And it's our responsibility to search it out, whether it's personal, whether it's within our family or within our church. Now, I'm not talking about being creating, you know, a bunch of little sin police. But God has biblical principles for us on how to deal with sin. We've got to understand that I'm responsible to do this. You're responsible to do this. And every one of us is responsible to do this as Jesus would, as we're corporate members in the body of Christ. Now, like I said, there's a right way to do that, and the Bible shares what that, that way is, and we'll get into that in future studies. But this is how you will keep uh, the church in one accord with God and the members with each other and be protected from uh, uh, false teachings and win false winds of doctrine and fanaticisms. Our spiritual attitude, friends, is to rid ourselves of every sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's to be our attitude. That's what Paul talks about when he says, pray without ceasing. That's to be our attitude. And when someone in the family of faith is in sin, we're to have a heart of compassion as Jesus has and love as Jesus has for that erring person. But the sin has to be dealt with. For we're all held accountable for it. And it's like eleven. It'll leaven the whole lump. And I'd say if we have a love for each other, we will esteem them better than ourselves and reach out to them to help them as God would have us do, but only in the way God would have us do it. No one likes to reprove somebody or rebuke something, but it is necessary at times for we're all held accountable to each other and to God. Amen. Let me share this with you. It's from Upward Look, page 206. Upward Look, page 206. Arduous and unpleasant duties have to be performed. 
None are to the place themselves where they will sanction wrong by none are to place themselves where they will sanction wrong by silence. They aid and abet the schemes of the enemy by keeping their lips closed when they should speak decidedly. Now, when we looked at that example of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, I don't want you to miss this, something very important. Don't miss that not all of the family members of Korah were destroyed in his rebellion. In Numbers 26 and verse 11, it says, Notwithstanding, the children of Korah died not. Why weren't they destroyed? Is it because God loves the little children? Well, God does love the little children, but God's a righteous God. Simply, it was because as difficult as it must have been for the children to tear themselves away from the rest of the family, they chose to follow God and obey God and his mandate to separate. And by doing that, they preserved their lives, their witness, they preserved their family line. But they chose to separate from their family and follow God. Let's look at another example of corporate sin in the case of uh, Jeremiah, who had prophesied, you recall, the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon uh, because God's people had sunk deep into uh, idolatry and apostasy. And God was still trying to reach them to save them. And of course, the leadership, they didn't uh, want to hear this dire prediction against God's chosen people. The reaction is found in Jeremiah 26 and verse 11. Then spake the priests and the prophets unto the princes and to all the people, saying, This man is worthy to die. And they're talking about Jeremiah. This man is worthy to die, for he hath prophesied against this city. You could say, against this church. As ye have heard with your ears. This is what they said. And what was Jeremiah's response? If you look at verse 15, he says, But know ye for certain that if ye put me to death, ye shall surely bring innocent blood upon yourselves, and upon this city, and upon the inhabitants thereof. For of a truth the Lord hath sent me unto you to speak all these words in your ears. So, not only would the church leaders be held accountable for his death if they were to go ahead and kill him, but all the inhabitants of the city as well. Think about it this way. A whole nation is held accountable for the words and the acts of its ambassador. If he should insult another nation, the whole nation is held accountable until such time as you know reparations are made and they, they work it out. This is the reason why you find in the Bible where different nations were completely destroyed by God, like I said before, like the Amalekites. In like manner, offenders in a church may hinder the divine blessing upon that entire church. And if the church fails to take appropriate action when sin is known or, or even unknown, we've seen examples of that, uh, Achan uh, for one, Ananias and Sapphira for another. The church then becomes a partaker in that sin. Review and Herald article, The Laodicean Church, September 30th, 1873. Notice this quote. If God abhors one sin above another, of which his people are guilty, it is of doing nothing in case of emergency. 
Indifference or neutrality in a religious crisis is regarded of God as a grievous crime and equal to the very worst type of hostility against God. So we have decisions we have to make. We can't be indifferent. We can't be neutral. And as we saw before, as we studied this, you know, in the book of Acts, Peter accused all those devout Jews that were present there at Pentecost, he, he accused them of being guilty of crucifying Jesus. Yet some of those devout men, they hadn't been present at the crucifixion, but that didn't excuse them in the least bit. The mere fact that they were corporately, you see, a part of the Jewish corpus, body, the Jewish church, made them guilty before God. And what was their response? The only solution Peter had to offer these men was for them to repent and be baptized and thus sever completely, separate, you see, their connection with the Jewish church, that untoward generation, as he called them. In other words, only a clear and marked separation from the apostasy would free them from the corporate guilt under which all the house of Israel stood before God. They must remove themselves in order to be one accord with the truth, thus God and his church, which had become the apostolic church. Now, I want you to notice something. As Peter preached that and called them to repentance, those devout Jews recognized this corporate accountability principle they accepted it, they repented, joined the new church. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, page 65. He, that's God, God shows us that when his people are found in sin, they should at once take decided measures to put that sin from them, that his frown may not rest upon them all. But if the sins of the people are passed over by those in responsible positions, his frown will be upon them, and the people of God, as a body, will be held responsible for those sins. It's very clear. In his dealings with his people in the past, the Lord shows the necessity of purifying the church from wrongs. One sinner may diffuse darkness that will exclude the light of God from the entire congregation. Just one from the entire congregation. And so, friends, I hope that the gravity of this principle is being realized. I run into more and more people that continue uh, to deny any culpability in staying within a fallen religious organization in an attempt to save them from the inside. It's amazing to me. These poor misguided souls don't realize the enormity of their decision to stay when God says to leave. Now, the last example, and I'll, I need to speed it up here so I can finish up. The last example of corporate sin that we see recorded in the Bible is contained in the most solemn messages ever given to mortal man. It's found in Revelation 14. I'm going to read verses 6 through 12. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink, of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. 
That's her sins, her iniquities, her rebellion, you see. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Now the three angels' messages that I just read here are all about corporate sin, that principle. It's a message that calls for a distinct Separation from sin and apostasy, from spiritual Babylon, Babylon fallen. Look at Revelation 18, verses 4 to 6. Let's look at it again. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her double according to her works, in the cup which she hath filled, filled to her double. That's not good. And just as the Bible has shown throughout the ages, friends, if you do not separate yourself personally as individuals and as a corporate body from sin, you're not in one accord with the truth. You're not in one accord with God or, or his corpus, his body you'll be held accountable for being discordant and suffer the consequences. Too many are waiting for God to supernaturally purify and cleanse their, their corpus, their corporation, their body, their church. Supernaturally purify it of, uh, of sin and supernaturally remove sinful leaders as if all they have to do is sit there passively and tolerate all the wickedness and apostasy going on around them. And God somehow miraculously, he'll bring unity. But light and darkness cannot come together, friends. Those who wait for God to perform a miracle will suffer the same as those who sin. For by waiting, you condone the actions of those who sin. You condone, condone disunity. You condone discord. You condone rebellion. From the book, This Day with God, page 240. Many have tried neutrality in a crisis, but they have failed in their purpose. No one can maintain a neutral ground. Those who endeavor to do this will fulfill Christ's words. No man can serve two masters. They will at last be found enlisted on the enemy's side. Now, many think that... Uh, that they're okay themselves, that they aren't responsible for what their leaders do or what other members do. Men are deceived in thinking that they're in one accord with God because they keep his commandments. I, and I personally keep my, the commandments. But all the while, their organization, their corpus, their body, their church is steeped in evil and sin and apostasy. But I hope you can now see that this is a grave error. We're held accountable for the condition of the religious corpus body, corporation, church that we belong to. God was held accountable in heaven. God himself. And what he do? He removed the sin and sinners from there. Has God changed? 
Same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Manuscript releases, volume 16, page 10. No one is without influence. Those who, in an effort to be neutral, manifest no positive hostility toward Christ and their brethren, may think that they are rendering a service to God. But such a thought's delusive. Upon the minds of those who are endeavoring to stand in a neutral position, satanic agencies are working. The first act of selfishness opens the way for the enemy's forces to enter. Our only safety is in active service for Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. Many of the brethren are drunk with the wine of Babylon and can't see that by refusing to believe this principle of corporate accountability, they're being set up to receive the mark of the beast. And friends, we've got to call them out. We've got to call them out. But they tell themselves that God will personally respect them, you see, because they're righteous. And after all, they can't do anything about the sin in their corporation. We'll tell that to the millions of Jews who were killed in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. They too thought they were in one accord with God and that he was going to supernaturally save them. But they died because they refused to listen to the warnings of corporate responsibility to deal with the sin or separate themselves from an apostate organization. Not one Christian was killed during that siege because they understood this principle. They heeded the warnings. And like Lot, they recognized the call to come out. They obeyed and being saved, they were saved from the consequences of, their, of inaction. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, page 266. If wrongs are apparent among his people, and if the servants of God pass on indifferent to them, they virtually sustain and justify the sinner and are alike guilty and will just as surely receive the displeasure of God, for they will be made responsible for the sins of the guilty. Oh, friends. Are you going to heed God's mandate to separate from all sin and apostasy? Or are you going to listen to the voice of man telling you, wait for God to act. God's going to cleanse the camp. Just wait. Just occupy. Patriarchs and Prophets, pages 166-167. I'll close up here, friends, in just a second. There was a coming out a decided separation from the wicked, an escape for life. So it was in the days of Noah, so with Lot, so with the disciples prior to the destruction. You could say so with the reformers, so with the pioneers of the Advent movement. And so it will be in the last days. As in the days of Noah and Lot, there must be a marked separation from sin and sinners. Unfortunately, as I said before, so many precious but deceived souls are waiting passively and indifferently for God to act supernaturally and purify and cleanse their organization, their church, their congregation, their corporation. But they're acting under a great and fatal delusion. For God has given us his divine instructions as to what our part should be regarding sin and apostasy. Either separate it from you, or if you can't do that, then you must separate from it. It's that simple. 
If you don't want to be among those who will partake of the plagues, you must be one accord with God, so you either have to obey Him or not. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 676. Wrongs must be called wrongs. Grievous sins must be called by their right name. All of God's people should come nearer to Him. Then will they see sin in the true light and will realize how offensive it is in the sight of God. The plain, straight testimony must live in the church or the curse of God will rest upon His people as surely as it did upon ancient Israel because of their sins. Oh, friends, I, I hope that you understand this principle now. You study to show yourselves approved and make your decisions. Keep looking up to Jesus and make your decisions. And one day we will be in one accord. So it says in Acts 2 and verse 1, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Friends, the Bible tells us, and it's going to happen very, very soon. Jesus is coming back. God will have a united people who are in one accord with Him and each other. And the question for us is whether we want to be among them or not. And when we're in one accord with God and each other, we will receive the power of the latter rain. We will finish the work and this great, great controversy will come to an end. And all the redeemed will then be in one place, united with Christ forever. And we can hasten that day. Let's deal with sin as God has commanded us to. And we can hasten his return. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you so much for your holy word. And for the Holy Spirit who has guided us through it and teaches us. Giving us discernment. This may be new for some people, this principle. Uh, and some people may have never heard it before. And I pray that you be very near to them and teach them. Bring them into the truth and help them to make righteous decisions. Always to obey you. Forgive us where we have sinned, Lord. Help us to overcome the obstacles that we have, the habits that we have, that we may be found worthy when Jesus returns. To that end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank those who have joined us through our Facebook page, uh, Three, Three Angels Sabbath Day Church Facebook page, our, our YouTube channel. And uh, uh, you can... Uh, We'll be here again next week. Join us. Study with us. And keep looking up, friends. Keep looking up. And walk with the Lord. You will not regret it. Till we see you next time. God bless you.